Good morning, Cry Out family. I'm so glad you can join us today. Uh, before we get into the message, I want to take this time to thank Dan Hunter and Pastor Joey for preaching in my absence. They both did a wonderful job in delivering God's Word to us. So God bless you and love you both very much. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, it's right after Nehemiah and right before Job. And our text today is Esther chapter 1. We're in part one of our new series, The Providence and Sovereignty of the Unseen King. Uh, this is one of the most powerful stories of all time. As, as I said in my promo, there's drama, there's power, and there's romance. Now, before we get into the text, I want to give you some background on this book. The date written it was sometime between 483 and 471 BC, and chronologically, the events in this book are set in the era of the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran. Esther comes between the return of a first group of a first group of Jews to Judah from Babylon under Zerubbabel, that's in 538 BC, and that's in Ezra, uh, chapters one through six, and the return of a second group led back by Ezra, uh, 458 BC, and that's in Ezra chapter seven, all the way through chapters ten. Esther fits in between uh, Ezra uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7. Esther covers a 10-year time uh, period. The, the author, something could be Ezra or, or Nehemiah because they both have similar writing styles, but it's most likely Mordecai. Historical background. While well, there was a civil war in Israel and both sides uh, weren't walking with God, so God allowed Assyria to take the north Israel into captivity, and then Babylon took the south, that's Judah, away for 70 years. In fact, the book of Daniel took place there while they were in exile. Then Babylon was overpowered by the Medes, by the Persians. The Jews then were free to return to the land. Zerubbabel uh, led the first group back, Ezra the second group, and Nehemiah the third group. So our story in the book of Esther is about the many Jews who chose to stay back in Persian captivity. The key people in this story, well, there's Esther. Say Esther. And that's her Persian name, and it means star. It means star, which is fitting because Esther was and became the shining light in a dark period in Israel's history. She was a light. Listen now, she was a light for such a time as this. We could say that a star is born. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. 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 Excuse me. Hadassah. Uh, means myrtle, which is an evergreen shrub. Uh, she was a beautiful Jewish orphan. And by the way, Esther is one of the only two books in the Bible that bear the names of women. The other book is Ruth. In fact, we did a series from the book of Ruth in 2016. I also want to point out that Ruth was a Gentile who married a Jew, and Esther was a Jew who married a Gentile. They were both women of faith and both women of great courage. They both yielded themselves to God and were used uh, by God to accomplish great things. In fact, they both helped to save the nation of Israel. Ruth became a part of God's wonderful plan for Israel to bring the Savior into the world, and she gave birth to, to a son, Obed. Uh, Obed's son was Jesse, and Jesse's son was David, and Jesus came from the line of David. Now, Esther by death of an enemy, which is Haman, helped save the nation of Israel so that the Savior could be born. Then there's Mordecai. Say Mordecai. 
Uh, this is Esther's cousin. He's about 15 years older than her, and he adopted her and raised her, and he was like a father to her. Also, uh, Mordecai exposes an assassination plot and becomes second in command to the king. Speaking of the king, uh, there's also King Xerxes. King Xerxes. He actually was called Ahasuerus, which was a, a title um, like Pharaoh or, or Caesar. His name means mighty man or lion. So I guess he's the first uh, lion king. I don't know. Uh, he, he's the, the grandson of, of Cyrus and the son of Darius the first and the father of Artaxerxes, uh, who will give Nehemiah permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, uh, ascended to the Persian throne B.C. 464. He was a very powerful king and reigned for 41 years. He was an intolerant, insensitive man and had a reputation for his fierce anger, and we'll see that later on in the text. Then there's Queen Vashti. Uh, queen Vashti. Uh, she's the wife of King Xerxes, Xerxes, excuse me, or Ahasuerus. And then we have uh, Haman. He's the antagonist and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the arch villain. Um, he's like Adolf Hitler as he tried to exterminate uh, the Jews. Key verse, uh, it's found in chapter 4, and it's verse 14. That's the key verse, chapter 4, verse 14. The key doctrine, the key doctrine is God's promise, I love this, to preserve the Jews. Write that down, God's promise to preserve the Jews. Now listen, like, like Exodus, the book of Esther chronicles how foreign powers tried to eliminate the Jewish race as well as how powerfully, I love this, how powerfully God preserved His people. And you see, God continually honored his covenant promises to Abraham. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. And you can find that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. Key words. Well, there's two key words in this book. And the first word is fasting. Fasting. And fasting was a common practice in the ancient world associated with mourning for the dead or intercessory prayer, repentance or contrition for sin, and also for times of distress. And also fasting was required of the day uh, for, excuse me, the day of atonement. The second key word in this book is pur, P-U-R, pur. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for lot, lot. Uh, people cast lots to make random selections. Haman... Uh, cast lots to determine the right day to destroy the, the Jews. On the other hand, I love this, God, God revealed his sovereign power by choosing that particular day to deliver the Jews. That's awesome. I love that. And by the way, today, in, in, uh, today the Jews celebrate the festival of Purim, Purim in remembrance of their deliverance. God's character. God's character. Uh, God is provident. This is his character in the book. God is provident and God is sovereign. Write that down. God is provident and God is sovereign. These are the two underlying themes of this book. God's providence and God's sovereignty. So, so let's look at these two words, but let's look first at the word sovereignty. 
The sovereignty of God refers, got to get this now, the sovereignty of God refers to his position of supreme authority and power. Write that down. Uh, it refers to his position of supreme authority and power. So he rules over everything and owns everything because he made everything. And not only did God create everything, he upholds all things and all things owe their continued existence to him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, 3. Go ahead and read that. Hebrews chapter 1, 3. Then we have the word providence. Say providence. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you believe God is working behind the scenes of history? Let me ask you this. Do you believe that God controls, guards, guides, and governs all things? Well, I believe that. And you see, that's stated, uh, that's, that's stated theologically as the doctrine of divine providence. It's the governance of God by which He, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. It asserts that He is in complete control. Got to get that. In complete control of all things. Write this down, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. It says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose Love this. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That is so awesome. So he's in complete control of all things. Psalm, Psalm 103.19, write that down. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established, has established his throne on heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So follow me. He's in control over the universe as a whole, over the physical world, over the affairs of nations, over human destiny, successes, and failures, over the protection, protection of his people. Say providence. Come on, say providence. Providence stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. So listen, through divine providence, God accomplishes His will to ensure that His purposes are fulfilled. Now listen, He ordained everything that will happen, yet, got to get this, yet in no sense is He the author of sin, nor is human responsibility removed. Now if you got it, say got it. Listen, as Christians, providence means God, listen, it means that God loves us has a wonderful plan for our lives, and has charge over us. Therefore, nothing happens to us by accidents, coincidence, or chance. Now, as believers, we don't believe in coincidence. We believe in providence. I'm going to say it again. We don't believe in coincidence. We believe in providence. Listen, he not only orders our steps, but also our stops. I'm going to say it again. He not only orders our steps, but also our stops. Now, the book 
of Esther is one of the greatest illustrations of God's providence of Romans 8.28. And we know, Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So to sum this all up, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty is his right, is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. This speaks of his position, his position of supreme authority and power. God's providence, God's providence is his seeing to everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes. He sees to it that it happens. This speaks of his complete control and purpose. Sovereignty, his position of supreme authority and power, providence, his complete control, <coughs> excuse me, and purpose. Complete control and purpose. So, so the main purpose of this book is to demonstrate God's providence and sovereignty and his loving care for his people. And that's what we see throughout this series. Okay, that's what we're going to see throughout this series. We, we will see God's providence and God's sovereignty working behind the scenes to accomplish his will and his purposes. And what God does, God begins to work, God begins, excuse me, God begins to move people and circumstances to bring about his plans for the Jews. Now, I need to mention this before we get into the text. In this book, the word king is found over a hundred times in the name of the king, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, nearly 30 times. But the name, title, or a pronoun for God, the real glorious king, never appears. No Yahweh, no Elohim. Not once is his name mentioned in this book, but his hand is nowhere missing. He's standing somewhere in the shadows. He's, he's ruling and he's, and he's overruling. He's, he's present and, and he's active, friends. And though he is hidden, he's not hiding. And though his name is not written on the pages of this book, we see his fingerprints all over it. I love that. Pastor Chuck Swindoll in his book, Esther, wrote this. God's presence is not as intriguing as his absence. His voice is not as eloquent as his silence. Who of us have not longed for a word from God, searched for a glimpse of his power, or yearned for the reassurance of his presence, only to feel that he seems absent from the moment, distant, preoccupied? Yet later, we realize how very present he was all along. G. Campbell Morgan said this, while there's no name of God and no mention of Hebrew religion anywhere, no one reads this book without being conscious of God. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, the absence of the name of God speaks to how it is that he works in our lives, even when it seems that he's silent in our lives. Listen, friends, he is for us. God, our God is for us, not against us. And he's working behind the scenes for our highest good. 
Now I want to say this. The book of Esther also doesn't mention the Mosaic law, sacrifice, or prayer. Yet again and again, the story told here shows our provident, sovereign God working quietly behind the scenes, shaping, listen now, shaping events so that his good purpose for his people is accomplished. Now listen, when I'm faced with troubles, trials, and, and heartaches, friends, when, when I'm downcast, there are two facts that sustain my soul, that give me peace, hope, joy, confidence, and comfort. And that is the providence and sovereignty of God. The providence and sovereignty of God. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Now, if you said amen, listen now, in the midst of COVID-19, we as believers shouldn't be freaking out. We shouldn't be living our lives with fear, friends. We should be displaying, be displaying peace, joy, and confidence in our lives, comforted by the fact that our God is in complete control. Complete control. <coughs> and what he's doing, he's orchestrating his purposes behind the scenes because nothing takes him, listen now, by surprise or catches him off guard. Amen. He has supreme authority and power, <coughs> and he's in complete control. So now let's get into the text. The title of my message is The Rejection of Vashti. Say that, The Rejection of Vashti. I have two points for you from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Number one is the banquets. Write it down. Write that down. The banquets. The banquets. In fact, there are three banquets in our text, and the king had a banquet, first subpoint, for his provincial officials. <coughs> Excuse me, for his provincial officials. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching out from India to Cush, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa or Shushan. Uh, same, same place. Susan, Shushan, Shushan, and Shushan are the same place, the capital of Persia. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet. There it is, a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. So these were military and political officers of the empire. They said it was about 1,000 plus. Some say it was 2,000 present at this banquet. Look at verse 4. For a full 180 days, that's six months. This is a six-month party paid for by the people. It costs millions of dollars. Talk about government wasting your taxes, right? So for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So it took him six months to display the vast wealth, right, of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. I can show you mine in about two minutes because I don't have much. Now I want to say this. The vast wealth of King Xerxes' kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty 
pales, pales in comparison to the real king. I want you to write this down. First Chronicles 29.11. First Chronicles 29.11. It says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Now, if you're saved, say amen. It will take eternal ages to begin to fathom the riches of God's grace and God's glory that we have in Him. Now, write this down, Ephesians 1.18. Ephesians 1.18. And Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, listen to what he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Good place to say amen. So back to the text, because Xerxes, Ahasuerus, same guy, he had a banquet, right? And so he had an ulterior, me, ulterior motive for this banquet, for this shindig. And you see, history tells us that the reason for this long feast, for this banquet, was to sell these military and political officials a war plan to prepare for his invasion of Greece. Now, eventually, King Xerxes and the Persians got spanked, and we'll talk more about that next week. So he had a banquet for his provincial officers, but he also had a banquet, second sub-point, is for his palace officials for his palace officials. Write that down. And what better way to end a six-month party than with another party, right? I mean, these guys like to party. And it seems that the king is thanking all of his uh, palace officials for helping him put on the first banquet, the first feast. So let's look at verses 5 through 8. And if you're still with me, say amen. Verses 5 through 8. Here we go. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven Days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of potpourri, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Verse 7, wine was served in goblets of gold. Forget the crystal. Each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. Verse 8, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So the king tells him, drink all that you want or as little as you want. It's totally up to you. Now there's a third banquet. And look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So while Xerxes was selling a war plan, Vashti entertained the wives and women at another banquet. 
And they had their own meal times and festivities. And you see, in, in that social custom, men and women didn't eat together. In fact, friends, it's still that custom in the East and in many other places. So that's the banquets, number one. Number two, point number two, is the banishment, the banishment of Vashti. Number one, the banquets. Number two, the banishment of Vashti. And I have four subpoints underneath point number two. And so the first sub-point, follow me now, is the drunkenness. The drunkenness. Write that down. The drunkenness. And let's look at verses 10 through 11. If you're still with me, say amen. Verses 10 through 11. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, I'm going to read that again. When King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, in high spirits from wine, translation, he was wasted. He was blitzed. Uh, the band Tower of Power would say that he was drunk as a skunk. So he was wasted. And he, then it says this, He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Abistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Sethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display... What? Her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. She was beautiful. So, so here we have a lovely face who's asked to be before lustful, drunken officials. And so the king gets drunk. We know that, right? The text is clear. The king gets drunk, and what he did was stupid. He overstepped himself because people who are drunk, let's be honest, do stupid Things. Now I want to say this. It's sad when people drink and lose their sense of judgment. And oftentimes a person will, will do things under the influence of alcohol that they would not normally do. Now listen, the tragic thing is that it robs a person of natural inhibitions and of good judgment. Well, this is exactly what happened to King Xerxes. He wanted Vashti, his wife, the queen, who was beautiful, right, beautiful, to come out and parade herself before the palace officials. In fact, some commentators believe that the text suggests that he wasn't asking her to just come in wearing her crown, but was asking her to come in only wearing her crown. He wanted her to come in naked so that all the men could see her. Now listen, it was a breach of custom for an Eastern woman to show her beauty. And it's like that even today. Now listen, he, the king, was stripping her of her womanly honor. Her body, her body was only for her husband to gaze upon. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Now listen, when it comes to drinking, I realize that the Bible doesn't command total abstinence from it. Drink, it says, but, but don't get drunk. And I get that. I totally get that. Okay, I know that drinking is not a sin, but getting drunk is a sin. I get that. Now, now I don't drink, not because I think that I'm more spiritual or more righteous or that I'm better than Christians who drink. It's a personal conviction of mine. I don't want to make anyone stumble especially someone who's recovering from alcohol. 
So that's a personal conviction of mine. But I do want to say this. If you get a buzz, then guess what? You're drunk. Let's just be honest. When you get a buzz, then you're drunk. The National Highway Traffic Safety Association says buzz driving is drunk driving. And so, friends, I say to you, and you can, you can take this or not, but the best way to avoid drunkenness is to not drink at all. A Japanese proverb warns, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes a man. And you see, had the king been sober, he would have never asked his wife to display her beauty, her beauty, beauty, excuse me, beauty before his drunken officials. And so his self-restraint and, and impractical wisdom were weakened by drinking too much. So we have the drunkenness. The, the second sub-point is the disobedience. Write that down, the disobedience. The disobedience. And look at verse 12a with me. Verse 12a. The disobedience, verse 12a. But when the attendants delivered the king's command... Queen Vashti refused to come. And I say good for her. And the reason why I say good for her because Queen Vashti represents a good example of the limits, say limits, of a wife's submission. And we'll talk more about this at the end of the message. Alexander White said this, the sacred writer makes us respect Queen Vashti amid all her disgusting surroundings. The brave queen refused to obey it. Her beauty was her own and her husband's. It was not for open show among hundreds of half-drunk men. And in the long run, the result of that night's evil work was that Vashti was dismissed into disgrace and banishment. Listen, friends, she, she sacrificed all the glamour, all the wealth, and all the stuff for the sake of personal dignity. And she refused to be shown off as a piece of property to be gazed at by drunken men. And you see, rather than lower the banner of womanly modesty, she accepted disgrace and dismissal. She chose deposition rather than dishonor. I want you to get this. And I love this. She was willing to sacrifice her crown for the sake of her character. I'm going to say it again. She was willing to sacrifice her crown. Write it down for the sake of her character. And I got to tell you, I admire her for that. So there's a lesson here. We always have a lesson, right? There's a lesson here. And the lesson is this. Character is everything. Character is everything. Look at your family member or whoever's there with you and say, character is is everything. Friends, don't sacrifice your character. Character is all that we have. In fact, let me ask you this question. What is your character worth? Think about that. What is your character worth? Let me ask you this. How far are you willing to go in order to win praise and attention? Let me ask you this. Are you sacrificing your character on the altar of acceptance? Let me ask you this, friends. When, when was the last time you did the right thing, the right thing, and paid the price for it? And do you remember? 
what it costs you? Do you? Huh? A relationship? A job? A sales contract? I don't know, a passing grade? Listen, it costs Queen Vashti everything, everything for doing the right thing. Got it? Everything for doing the right thing. And we, we got to understand this, you know. Sometimes we're going to lose things for doing the right thing. And God will bless you for doing the right thing. Look at verse 12b. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So, so this guy went on a tirade and his anger boiled within him. And remember, remember what we said, right? He was known in our intro, he was known for his what? His fierce anger. Herodotus, the, the Greek historian, uh, tells us that, that he, the king, Xerxes, had, had a bridge built by 300 men. But a storm destroyed the bridge that came from the ocean and wiped out the bridge. And so the, the, the Greek historian says that he was so, that he, the king, was so angry that the king went into the ocean and, and began and started beating the ocean, started beating the waves. He was so angry. And not only that, but the historian uh, tells us that the king sent some of his men to go into the ocean with whips and swords and, and whip the ocean and stab the waves for its insubordination. You know, like that's really going to, change anything but this is the kind of temper that this king this man had not only that but then he took the 300 men that built the bridge and had their heads cut off because he felt they didn't do a good job building it so this man was just he had an anger problem right well proverbs 14 17 proverbs chapter 14 verse 17 a says this a quick-tempered person does foolish things yeah Right? A quick-tempered person does foolish things. And we see that in the life of King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. The third sub-point is the dilemma. Write that down. The dilemma. The dilemma. And then we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. If you're still with me, say amen. The dilemma, verses 13 through 18. And it says, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king, and were highest in the kingdom. Now look at verse 15. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes and the eunuchs that the eunuchs have taken to her. Verse 16. Then Memukin replied 
in the presence of the king and the nobles. See, Memukin probably was thinking, you know, I, I've got to do something about this queen because I can't go home. I mean, my wife's, my wife's going to have a heyday with this. In fact, she's already nagging me. So, so Memukin says this, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. Verse 17. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. Verse 18. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. The same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So in other words, he's saying, well, all the women are going to say, well, Queen Vashti didn't listen to the king, so why should we listen to our husbands? And Memukin was melodramatic, man. And, you know, he's saying this is not just a, a domestic problem, uh, but, but this is going to be, uh, going to affect the whole world, the whole world. So what they do is they advise the king to remove Vashti and make her a public example to the entire nation. So the drunkenness, the disobedience, the dilemma, and the fourth subpoint is the decree. The decree. Write that down. The decree. If you're still with me, say amen. Hopefully you said amen. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 with me. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. It's, in other words, it, it's irrevocable. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position, listen now, to someone else who is better than she. Now, now two things real quick here. First, Vashti's decision cost her position, cost her position on the royal court, the king's court. And, and with beauty and, and, and charm and courage and heroism and character and integrity, she flies off the pages of Scripture. We no longer hear about Queen Vashti after this chapter. The second thing I want to say is this. As far as God was concerned, the most important point of the decree, or we can even say the, the edict, was let the king give her royal position to another. Why? Because this will allow Esther, an inroad, to become queen. Got it? Verse 20. When the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women, listen to what he says, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Now, I got to say this. The goal presented here, the goal presented here, all the women will respect their husbands was admirable. It was admirable. But the problem here is, this is forced respect. This is forced submission. And they go about the right thing in the wrong way. And I'll talk more about that later on. Verses 20 and 21. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memukin proposed. 
He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. So what they were doing, they were encouraging every husband to act like King Xerxes and manage the home on the basis of executive command. Now listen, the means used here to gain and, 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 and preserve this respect, it was foolish. It was dumb. Listen, listen now. Listen, men. A man cannot demand or, of course, respect or submission from his wife. Listen now, listen now. Respect, submission is earned. It's earned, not forced. So what I want to do right now is I want you to write this down, or you can turn to it. It doesn't matter. It's up to you. Ephesians chapter 5, 5, verses 22 through 24. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. I wish I had more time to get really into this, but that's not really the context of uh, our text, but I want to kind of touch up on this right now. And it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That word submit is a word, the Greek word, hupotasso. It means to get under, to support. Okay? That's what it means, to get under or to support. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23 of Ephesians 5, For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Did you get that? In everything. But I want to say this. It's not absolute. And not without limits. Got it? Colossians, write that down. Colossians 3.18. Colossians 3.18 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Listen to what he says. As fitting in the Lord. Got it? It's got to be fitting in the Lord. Get this. A wife should never, never, never submit to her husband in what opposes the nature and character of God and His Word. Got it? And all the ladies said, Amen. Ladies, if your husband asks you to do something that goes against or opposes the nature and character of God and His Word, don't do it. Don't do it. There are limits to your submission. And my point is this. In Esther chapter 1, submission and respect is demanded. But in Ephesians chapter 5, particularly verse 25, submission and respect is to be the response of a woman toward a man who loves her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how submission and respect is earned. And I got to tell you, men, listen now, husbands, if you love her that way, that way, that way, loving her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, if you love her that way, she will have no problem with submitting to your leadership. She will have no problem respecting you. See, the reality is this. 
You both need to submit to each other. And husbands, you submit by loving your wife. And wives, you submit by respecting your husbands. Husbands, your priority is to love her. Wives, your priority is to respect him. That's a whole sermon in itself. If you got it, say amen. So as we wrap this up, in this chapter alone, man, I'm so excited. I'm so stoked about this series. In this chapter alone, we see a series of events that are being, get this now, that are being set in motion. Say that. Set in motion, directed by the hand of God. And what it does, it shows us and reminds us that God is in complete control. He's in control of anyone, okay, anyone he wants to be in control of, and includes kings, queens, dictators, prime ministers, and even presidents. And if he wants to move them in a different way than they plan on moving, he'll do it. He'll do it. He can do whatever he wants. Why? Because he's God. And he's large and in charge. And what he's doing, he's orchestrating. He's orchestrating. Listen, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now, but what he's doing right now, he's orchestrating his purposes behind the scenes. He's all-powerful and in control and will accomplish his purposes in our lives. So, listen now, so let's be still. Let's be still and know that He is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray that we all would be comforted and confident and strengthened knowing that You are the real King. that you are God. And no matter what we're facing in life, no matter what the circumstance or situation, we can trust in your providence and sovereignty. You're in charge, Lord, and in control of our lives. And Father, you're ordering our steps and our stops. And Father, you're present active, working behind the scenes, accomplishing your purposes in our lives. So thank you, Lord. We love you and praise you and glorify you and honor you. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Well, have a great week. God be with you. Trust him. Know that he's provident and sovereign. Continue to serve him and love him. Live by faith, not fear. And I'll see you next week. Love you, miss you. God bless.